In a province facing concerns over healthcare, education, and what to do with a booming oil-based provincial surplus, the race to replace Jason Kenney as leader of the United Conservative Party and Premier has largely focused on one major issue, Alberta's autonomy. The discussion about various ways to advance Alberta's place in Confederation was once again front and centre at the final official leadership debate in Edmonton. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post reporter Tyler Dawson joins me to discuss Tuesday's debate, whether anyone appears to be gaining ground on frontrunner Danielle Smith, and why the issue of autonomy or sovereignty has been such a looming presence. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Tyler, we're a little bit over a month away from actual vote results day in the UCP leadership race. Ballots are being sent out to members soon, and they'll be casting their ballots over the coming weeks. In the lead up to that, we had a debate in Edmonton on Tuesday evening, the Citadel Theater. I heard the room was packed. I'm not sure if that was because it was air conditioned and it was 30 degrees outside, or we're just kind of seeing much more interest in the race now than perhaps a couple of months ago. What were your initial thoughts on Tuesday night's debate? Was there a clear winner? Were there people who maybe didn't get a chance to talk as much? What was the feel of Tuesday night? You're definitely right about the air conditioning part of it because the atrium of the Citadel Theater where it was held was like absolutely sweltering, but it was, you know, nice and cool in the theater. The energy, I guess, of the debate was sort of interesting. And that's because of the way the format was sort of set up in which there were, I think, six, no, there must have been seven individual topics that were brought up and say Travis Taves got arts and culture. And so he got a minute or something like that to talk about his plan for arts and culture. And then he got to select who he wanted to debate on it. And I think he maybe picked Todd Lowen. Anyways, that who he picked doesn't actually matter. Um, <laughs> and then the other candidates all had the chance to sort of jump in with rebuttals and they got five rebuttals each. But the, the sort of net effect of this at the end of the night is that only once did Danielle Smith get picked as the immediate debate partner. And so she had to use her rebuttals if she wanted to interject. And then she was sort of trying to pivot that back to her Alberta Sovereignty Act stuff. So the, it ended up being, I think, a pretty good night for... Travis Taves and a pretty good night for Rebecca Schultz and Rajan Sani, who just sort of seemed to end up with a fair bit of airtime as a result of the format. I mean, I had wondered a little bit how it was going to play out. It sounds like it was the same format as the debate that was in Southern Alberta earlier this summer. And during that debate, it felt like people like Rajan Sani and Leela here needed to kind of make a name for themselves in the debate. And you got a lot more discussion involving Danielle Smith, who was seen and is still seen as the front runner in the race. And because of that, Danielle Smith really got a chance to put her messaging out there and get in the mix a lot. And I get the sense that maybe candidates realized that giving her more time to talk wasn't what they needed in this race to put their message out there, right? Yeah, I think there's for sure some truth to that. You know, the, the ever since this race began, you know, everyone has sort of been playing catch up and, and respond to what Danielle Smith is saying, as opposed to really being able to sort of successfully get out there and, and talk about what they would do differently and what their proposals actually are. And I, th I think we heard a fair bit of that on Tuesday evening from the candidates up on the stage. 
but it, it was not quite the Danielle Smith show, even if, you know, maybe the race itself is sort of looking that way. But, you know, I've been telling everyone I've talked to about this, and this is a slight aside from the debate. You know, Danielle Smith is the front runner for sure, at least in terms of media attention, the way candidates are having to respond to her proposals, things like that. But there has not been very much polling done, certainly none in the past month or so, three weeks, three and a half weeks. And we also have no idea what the ground game looks like. We don't know how many members each candidate has signed up. We don't know what they're getting out the vote strategy is we don't know who's owning the most knocking on the most doors and things like that because there's kind of two sides to all of this right there's the public side of it Mm -hmm. that we all read about in the paper and talk about and talk about the, the big policy proposals that make a splash but there's all this other stuff going on behind the scenes and especially in sort of a preferential ballot system which is what the ucp uses you know a lot of this behind the scenes ground game burning the shoe leather knocking on doors stuff makes a big difference at the end of the day so I have no inside knowledge on on how close it is or how not close it is, but um, just you know, food for thought as people start you know polishing the crown already for Danielle Smith. Leadership races within parties are often like that, you know, where you get a narrative around a candidate who may or may not win. Especially in Alberta conservative politics, we've seen races where eventual leaders have not been the front runner and in fact were kind of a compromise choice. I think of Ed Stelmack winning out over Ted Morton and Jim Dinning. I think of Alison Redford winning out over Gary Marr and Doug Horner. Do we get a sense that that could play out on election day? Like you have, there's enough animosity among Travis Taves voters toward Daniel Smith that, you know, they may all pick someone else as their secondary vote or Leela, here's second place voters, Rajan Sani's second place voters could lean towards Travis Taves and, and think, well, if my candidate's not going to win, I don't want Daniel Smith to win. So I'm going to put my vote behind Travis Taves and that could actually see him gain a lot of ground. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. I mean, again, because we don't know any of the numbers, it's really hard to speculate. But, you know, if you take Danielle Smith and Travis Taves as the two front runners, and then Brian Jean, probably the third place person, which is a little bit of speculation on my part. But, you know, that does sort of put Brian Jean's supporters in some way of being the kingmakers in this thing who can who can move their votes around to make a difference. So, yeah, I mean, I think the way it works is they need 50% of the vote. So it could be all over on the first ballot. You know, if Danielle Smith or Travis Taves get get 50 plus one or, or whatever the number is, it could be all done. But uh, there's certainly the possibility that there's going to be, you know, a second place choice who slips in there or even a third place choice, because, you know, it's hard to imagine someone putting maybe Danielle Smith as their first choice and then Travis Taves as their second choice. You know, if, if there is all this animosity and it is obviously the Kenny camp and the, the Smith camp are, are sort of you know, aligned behind Taves on one side and Smith on the other. So you could see that happen, but it's pretty hard to speculate at this point, I think, to what that might actually look like. And, you know, there's geography involved, like Leela here has perhaps a lot of supporters. She signed up in Chestermere and Strathmore, but she has supporters in Fort McMurray, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to parse exactly what might happen uh, when the ballots are all in. Back to Tuesday night's debate, and I cast my mind back further to the Southern Alberta debate, especially because people were targeting Danielle Smith and her policy for an Alberta Sovereignty Act, and many of them saying how bad an idea it is. We got a lot of debate around Alberta's relationship with Ottawa and Alberta's place in Confederation. Mm-hmm. Was that the case on Tuesday night? Was you know autonomy a big subject that people wanted to bring up? I know you mentioned that Smith, when she had her rebuttals, was bringing things back to that discussion. What was kind of the big or two or three of the big topics that came out of Tuesday night? 
Yeah, so certainly the sovereignty stuff was part of it because Danielle Smith has her Alberta Sovereignty Act, but, you know, Brian Jean has his whole autonomy for Alberta thing. Travis Taves has, you know, sort of an autonomy section on his website. You know, John Sani is, you know, perhaps the odd one out saying that this is a delusion. So she was really critical, for example, of Danielle Smith. And there was a bit of a back and forth between Danielle Smith and Travis Taves about the constitutionality of either of their proposals. Travis Taves is pitch is basically sort of a series of retaliatory tariffs that would be put on the industries of provinces or whatever that do things that the legislature doesn't like. And, you know, Brian Jean got in that too, saying, look, they're both illegal. What we actually need is to reopen the Constitution and renegotiate some of these things. So that was certainly a topic of discussion. I think without a doubt, it was sort of the umbrella hanging over a lot of it. You know, on, on education, Danielle Smith brought up the Alberta Sovereignty Act saying, you know, Education is the only thing that Ottawa hasn't tried to interfere in in Alberta. And I, I think it came up in arts and culture when they talked about that, too. So it was pretty wide ranging, you know, and, and some of the topics did play into that. Obviously, talking about policing and crime plays into some of the sort of autonomy discussions because there was talk about a provincial police force. Affordability came up. Was another sort of big issue that that I think we're going to see more of that, of course, because we had the fiscal update that showed a was it thirteen billion dollar surplus. So you know you got a you got a, a bunch of different topics, and I think could maybe tease out some of the things that are we're going to hear more about in the weeks ahead. And but it was interesting because you know there were seven topics, and I don't think that autonomy was one of those actual topics. You know, <laughs> it, it, it came up in various ways, but I unless I'm completely spacing out and not remembering. I don't think it was specifically one of the topics. We'll be right back. Looking at the race more broadly, when Daniel Smith came out of the gate and was floating this Alberta Sovereignty Act as kind of like the main tent pole of her platform, one of the first things that she would do if she were elected premier, the race seemed to coalesce around this conversation about what Alberta needs to do to assert itself within confederation, how we can take on a combative federal government and all of that. But I, I thought as the race went on, we would have that discussion and then we would kind of move on. And it seems like the race hasn't. <laughs> Why do you suppose that this is the big topic that these candidates want to discuss. And I, I know you said that, you know, Rajan Sani doesn't have that in her platform. She thinks it's kind of a, it's a bad idea to discuss. And she pointed out in the first debate, a Daniel Smith win kind of cements an NDP win next spring, because that's not where the bulk of Albertans are. So what are pundits or experts who keep an eye on Alberta politics saying about the race being kind of this one big discussion about autonomy or sovereignty or you know, giving the middle finger to the feds. The folks I've talked to have pointed out that basically it's never a bad bet to run against Ottawa if you're running in Alberta politics. And that's probably doubly the case when we're talking about running for the leadership of a conservative party, because of course this isn't a general election. This is not 4 million Albertans. This is 123,000 people who are committed enough to the United Conservative Party, committed enough to conservatism to go out and buy a membership, and they are heavily concentrated in rural and small-town Alberta, the sorts of places where this sort of sense of alienation is a little bit more acute than you might find in, in Calgary or Edmonton. So to some extent, you know, it's a naked play for power, whether, you know, the candidates believe these things in the core of their being. 
that's between them and God, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of a political pitch to a dedicated group of people who feel that they have been slighted over the past several years, it's a win-win proposal. And when we look at the things that brought down Jason Kenney back in May, I think it was when he resigned or resigned and then said he would resign again in, uh, in October, um, the two things that basically brought him down were the COVID-19 pandemic measures and the sort of general inability of his government to get anything done on the sort of sovereignty, shall we say, file. You know, there was the equalization referendum that passed and nothing really happened with it. There was the constitutional reference case on the carbon tax that lost at the Supreme Court. There was the Fair Deal panel that studied all of these things that by and large have not been done. And indeed, with the example of the, the provincial police force, have been super controversial, particularly in small town and rural Alberta. So you had a membership that was already mad about these things and who felt that Jason Kenney was much too friendly with Ottawa, did not push nearly hard enough, was not aggressive enough, and that still also sees you know, the root cause of all of Alberta's problems being its relationship with Ottawa and a hostile liberal government in Ottawa, you know, sort of the same sentiment that's been around for 120 years. So you take sort of all of those factors together and it all of a sudden sort of explains why they are talking about this so much. Because historically, if you look sort of at the, the, the ebbs and flows of Alberta alienation over the past 100 years or so, it generally spikes during times of economic uncertainty and economic downturn. You know, that's why it was particularly potent in the 70s and 80s, uh, around the time of the National Energy Program. It's why you had this major resurgence of it in 2019, after sort of four years of the Liberal government in Ottawa being in power and legislation passed that was seen as hostile to the energy industry at the same time as the province was dealing with this oil price crash from about 2015. The difference this time, of course, is that the economy is doing well. So that is a bit of a, a confusing thing, I would say. With this whole fair deal strategy, the referendum, all of these things that Jason Kenney brought in, Kenney has made a lot of hay talking about how the nut bars are taking over the party he helped create. And then he's talked about how bad an idea some of Daniel Smith's policies are. I think that he called the Sovereignty Act. I think he said nutty. He said nutty. So we have these nutty ideas and we have the, you know, his allegation that people on the fringe are taking over his party. Is there a sense that he perhaps helped embolden the wing of that party when he came in making promises about a fair deal for Alberta, about, you know, pushing the government to lobby the feds to reopen equalization? Are there any observers of politics out there that say, well, you know, Kenny may be upset about these things, but he kind of started it. Yeah, I mean, if you were to ask a, a progressive analyst, I think that's probably what they would say. They would say, you know, you hitched your cart to this horse and, and the horses started running off, but you're still sort of tethered to it. And I think there's probably some truth to that, to be honest. I mean, there's a little bit of a cart and a horse thing, which which is coming first, or a chicken and an egg thing here. You know, is this grassroots sentiment bubbling its way up through the party, or is it the leader of the party or prospective leader of the party telling people that they should be angry about these things and therefore people are getting angry. So the alienation, the sovereignty stuff, I think a critic would maybe say that. And then, but then, you know, it's a little trickier if you want to run that analysis, I think on some of the pandemic stuff mm -hmm. where Kenny was, you know, reluctant, but uh, pretty forceful at the end of the day. So, you know, I, I think there's an element of that, but this is also, it, it's kind of a constant in Alberta politics. You know, I, 
can't remember who it was, Paula Simons, I think, former Edmonton Journal columnist and now senator, saying that this is just sort of the the perennial grievance in Alberta. And just, you know, we like to to complain about things and be upset about things, and and that's potent for a politician and hard to resist. But but I think when you sort of look at what's happened in the last two years, the horse maybe has started running off because some of this alienation has been linked up with some of the pandemic stuff has been fueled by some of the pandemic stuff. And you just sort of have this stew of discontent that's in some ways, I think quite a bit different than it was even three years ago. Now, lastly, I did find it strange the the province announcing its quarterly fiscal update today, Wednesday, as we're having this conversation. And in advance of the debate, Jason Kenney puts out a video touting this massive surplus that Alberta's on track for, suggesting that, you know, we're going to have a $13 billion surplus and we're going to re-index your tax bracket to inflation thing, that something that the government was criticized for. Do you feel that that was deliberate? Did that change the tone of any discussions around finances at the debate? And does that kind of play into Travis Taves, who famously was Kenny's finance minister mm-hmm. up until recently, did that play into his hands at all for him to come out and say, hey, things are great right now? It did come up a little bit in terms of talking about what to do with some of the money and things like that. So you did hear people talking about you know, putting more money into the Heritage Trust Fund and stuff like that. It was not a particularly huge part of the evening, I wouldn't say, although Travis Taves did talk quite a bit about his record as finance minister, which um, you know he's clearly proud of his time as finance minister. After the debate finished, there were scrums with each of the candidates, with reporters, and, and that, that, that question came up. You know, Do you think this was deliberate? Did this help Travis Taves? Was this leak essentially done to try and benefit him in the debate? And you know, all the candidates kind of hemmed and hawed and, and wouldn't really take a bite out of that apple. Mm-hmm. You know, Judging from the fact that everyone was asking those questions, I do think there was the perception among reporters and, and presumably analysts as well that this was some sort of strategic leak that would help Travis Taves. And because Travis Taves is, I know this is getting slightly off your question, but you know Travis Taves is an interesting spot because he is linked to the Kenny era in a lot of ways. And actually, so are Sonny and uh, Schultz as well, who were cabinet ministers, transportation and children's services, respectively. And their records came up too. You know, They were asked, why did you support these COVID-19 measures? Why didn't you speak out in advance? Why didn't you criticize X, Y, Z? So they're in this interesting position of where they are not entirely fresh blood, and some of the other candidates were pointing that out. And so for Travis Taves, you know, he has to wear some of the decisions of the Kenny era. You know, the de-indexing of income tax, for example, is something that even if it was reversed, that is something he needs to grapple with. So it, regardless, I guess, of, of whether or not there was a tactical leak or something on Tuesday, you know, the, the broader question maybe is to what extent does the last sort of three years, is that an albatross for someone like Travis Taves? Mm-hmm. And I mean, we'll see how that all plays out in early October. Indeed. Tyler, thanks for your time. Always a pleasure. 10.3 is a presentation of Post Media, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Tyler Dawson. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.